Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington, the chair of the Academic Freedom Alliance. Uh, Thank you for joining us for the first of what we hope will be a regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I'm Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today, I'm pleased to be moderating a panel discussion on an important recent decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit um, that will have significant implications for the scope of professorial speech rights in public universities in the United States. The U.S. Supreme Court has suggested that free speech protections of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution extends to the university context to provide some coverage for academic freedom of professors employed at public universities. Uh, The court has never been particularly clear, however, about the details of those constitutional protections, and academic freedom guarantees in the United States have long depended on contractual commitments made by public and private universities to their faculty. Those contractual guarantees have generally followed the framework advocated by the American Association of University Professors, particularly in its 1940 statement on principles of academic freedom and tenure. As a result, the federal circuit courts have often been left to their own to develop out the extent of those constitutional and contractual protections for academic freedom and the extent to which AAUP ideals about academic freedom enjoy some First Amendment protection um, has remained unclear. In that context, the recent opinion written by Judge Amul Thapar is particularly important and is likely to be influential in courts across the country in coming years. I'm joined today by a terrific panel of scholars to discuss the issues arising out of this case. They include Jeannie Sergerson, the John H. Watson Jr. Professor at Harvard uh, Law School, Steve Sanders, Professor of Law at the Marr School of Law at Indiana University, and Jonathan Adler, the Johan Verhey Memorial Professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. The case we'll be discussing is Meriwether versus Hartop. Nicholas Merriweather is a philosophy professor at Shawnee State University in Ohio. In 2016, Shawnee informed the faculty that they were expected to refer to students by their preferred pronouns. Merriweather used Mr. and Mrs. and his and Ms. and last names when calling on students uh, in his classes and believed that referring to individuals by self-identified gender impinged on his own religious convictions. Merriweather was instructed by university officials that he would need to refer to students by terms consistent with their self-identified gender. And following a student complaint, the university found Merriweather in violation of the requirements of Title IX for creating a hostile educational environment, which the university later recharacterized as uh, treating students on a differential uh, basis. Uh, The result was a warning letter in Merriweather's personal file. Merriweather argued that the threat of further disciplinary actions altered um, how he taught his classes and the topics um, that he um, covered. Um, As a consequence, he filed suit against um, his university, which eventually made its way into the federal circuit courts. The panel of the Sixth Circuit found in Merriweather's favor. In order to resolve the case, the court held 
that university teachers have First Amendment rights when teaching, and that in this context, those First Amendment interests outweighed his government employer's interest in efficiently providing public services. So let me start uh, with those facts of the case. I significantly abbreviated um, a complicated set of facts that arose um, out of the Murray-Weather situation and the relationship between this professor um, and Shawnee State University. Um, so let me start by asking if any of the panelists think that there are other material aspects of the case that we ought to get on the table to inform our conversations uh, going, going forward. Jonathan, I know you had something you wanted to add in particular. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're Two things I would note. I mean, one is this case was uh, on appeal from a motion to dismiss. So the facts that the Sixth Circuit accepted are those construed in the light most favorable to Professor Merriweather. Um, there was not factual development of what interests the university might have had. So it's certainly possible, as we'll probably discuss, that that on remand back in the district court, that the professor could uh, well lose. So I, I think that's that's important. Um, the the primary issue the Sixth Circuit was answering were the legal standards that should be applying to these claims. The other small factual issue that I think is, is relevant and interesting, I think, for our discussion, although it's unclear how ultimately legally relevant it would be, is at one point, uh, or one of the facts that was found by uh, the magistrate was that Professor Merriweather had asked uh, the, an administrator whether or not uh, if he agreed to uh, use a student's preferred pronouns and, and gender identifiers. Uh, he could note his personal views in the course syllabus. And the statement of the university administrator was that that would violate the university's policy. Um, and I think that's potentially significant from an academic freedom standpoint, if one is concerned, as we'll get into, if we're concerned about what opportunities professors have to express their own views, um, whether or not those sorts of alternative avenues exist, is, is something that, that is worth thinking about. Jeannie? Yes, one thing I, I just wanted to get on the table, um, Jonathan is absolutely right that this is on a motion to dismiss and that's partly why the decision reads as it does in terms of uh, painting Professor Merriweather in the light most favorable. Um, I do think that there's one thing that all of us as teachers, you know, we've all been in classrooms with students of all different kinds and with the diversity that exists in universities today, we've had those interactions, the group interactions and the one-on-one -on -one interactions. And I think that one thing that is important to just keep on the table is that yes, these are these are about the legal issues. Um, not everyone on this call is on this uh, in this audience is are, are lawyers. We all have the panel happens to be, but there is um, a question here about. Um, the abstract issue versus the what we know to be the experience of being in the classroom, both as a teacher and as a student, just how self-conscious one can be in a classroom that involves being called on and uh, you know being like called on by name and uh, cold called even as we often do in law schools and and just what what kind of anguish and humiliation can be experienced in that setting by students in a way that is um, not totally symmetric between professor and student. And especially if you are already a member of uh, a, a minority group or marginalized or underrepresented in higher education. So I do think that, that that's something that because of the particular singling out, um, the facts of singling out or targeting of one student um, to be treated in a certain way, I think that, that that's something that 
really struck me as a teacher, uh, the experience of what it might have been like in the classroom. Keith, could I just to piggyback on that briefly? Uh, I, I think it's, it, it ties into Jeannie's point. So the, the, the opinion really is cast as, you know, Professor Merriweather is seeking protection against punishment by the university, the university dictating his speech. If you read his complaint, he seems to be asking, he's really asking for a right to use what he calls biologically appropriate pronouns. Maybe that's just the other side of the same coin, but he is basically has asked for in his complaint um, uh, the freedom to you to call his transgender students by the gender he thinks they belong to rather than they belong to. So I, I think we shouldn't let that point get lost as well. Yeah, and I did want to start with you, Steve, as well, and just the, noting the sort of basic issue of uh, what academic freedom uh, includes and, and why the court thinks this is protected by the First Amendment at all. So how do, how do we convert academic freedom into a First Amendment issue and how did the court do it? Yeah, so, so academic freedom in the most general sense, I, I think all of us agree, refers to the freedom of a faculty to engage in research, teaching, and public service without undue interference from their employers, from the government, or from other external actors. Uh, unlike the First Amendment, academic freedom is not an individual liberty. Uh, the justification has always been instrumental. It's, it's a bargain. Allow faculty to apply their long training and specialized judgment to pursue truth, and society will benefit from their research insights and from the innovation they create and from having better educated citizens. The AAUP has, has always said that universities are conducted for the common good, not to further the interest of either the individual or the teacher, uh, 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 the individual teacher or the institution. Uh, as you said in the introduction, while academic freedom has been mentioned in Supreme Court opinions over the years, there really is not what you could call a doctrine of academic freedom or even a law of academic freedom in the constitutional sense. Academic freedom refers to conventions and traditions in higher education, which sometimes overlap and sometimes don't, I think, with the First Amendment. And another thing complicating the picture is that institutions themselves are thought to have academic freedom against interference by the government or external forces. And sometimes the faculty's freedom and the institution's freedom may be at cross purposes or at odds. So turning to the Sixth Circuit opinion, I'd say the music is academic freedom, but the lyrics are the First Amendment. The framing, the theme is, is academic freedom because this happened at a university, but it wasn't a public university. And so I think the relevant actual legal analysis um, the court applies is a fairly conventional law regarding the speech rights of public employees, the Pickering-Connick framework. Now, um, Professor Merriweather brought this suit because he thought he should be allowed to address students in his classes by what he called biologically appropriate pronouns. The court tells us that by enforcing a policy about pronouns and honorifics, um, uh, the, a policy that's intended to further principles of non-discrimination, the university was violating Merriweather's First Amendment rights, that it was compelling his speech and forbidding him to express his religious views about a matter of public concern. That is how pronouns should be used to refer to people's gender identity. My own view is that this is not properly a case about academic freedom. Meriwether is not a linguist or a gender scholar advancing 
conclusions from his own scholarship and teaching on a matter of disciplinary expertise. Rather, he is voicing a personal religious belief. That's not to say it doesn't carry weight. It is to question whether it's about academic freedom. Moreover, he wasn't threatened with punishment for protesting the policy at a faculty senate meeting or writing a critical article about it or even teaching about language from his own expertise. And so um, simply put, my, my own is that academic freedom properly understood is not at stake in this case. And I'll, I'll close by saying many of us, I think, will, um, many of us would agree that the, the, the First Amendment doctrine and the free speech rights of public employees is, is pretty dismal, pretty stingy. And this opinion recognizes that a public university is not just another government workplace. Unlike most government employees, much perhaps most of what faculty do arguably falls under the heading of speech on matters of public concern. And so for that reason, I think, you know, many of us cheered the opinion, at least on a kind of first reading or when we hear about it, we think this is good that a federal court is actually standing up for free speech rights in the university context. I just think, and I know we'll have time to explore this, that this case confuses a true question of academic judgment um, with a matter of, uh, uh, with a professor's religious views. But because this uh, Sixth Circuit panel seemed committed to the idea that universities need stronger protections for academic freedom, um, we got the opinion that we did. Yeah, I do want to circle back to that question of, of the specifics of what Meriwether's doing and whether or not that ought to fall under academic freedom properly uh, conceptualized. Before I get there, though, I wondered if, Jonathan, if you could lay out a little more the um, uh, the doctrine that, that Steve just referred to about government employees more generally and, and what kind of First Amendment rights they have relative to their uh, public employer. Sure. And, why, and why the court wanted to characterize this as an academic freedom exception uh, to those sort of general rules about how you'd re relate to government employees more broadly. Sure. So as, as Steve noted, the, the state of, of First Amendment protection for government employees is quite constrained. And uh, the primary case that we point to is a case called Garcetti versus Sabalos, where a, a prosecutor claimed that he suffered an adverse employment action over a, a memorandum that, that had been written in the course of, of employment. And what the court held in Garcetti was that a government employee's speech in the, that is in the course of their employment is not subject to First Amendment protection. And so this memorandum written to the superior within the prosecutorial office uh, insofar as it upset or offended or was objected to by the supervisors, they took an adverse action based on that. A First Amendment claim uh, uh, could not be brought. And the court in that case, uh, Justice Kennedy's opinion, noted that, it, that this may or may not apply to uh, academic employees at, at uh, state universities. Uh, and that uh, and Justice Souter in, in dissent raised this as a particular concern, that, that because uh, state universities or a significant percentage of our universities are state universities, that if there was a broad exception to all First Amendment protection for anything that professors at such universities said while teaching, while engaged in their scholarship, both things that are part of their, uh, their work as professors at universities, that this could really undercut principles of academic freedom. And so the Supreme Court kind of set that aside Lower, uh, several lower courts have held that um, academic freedom uh, is an exception to Garcetti, that when 
uh, uh, professors are engaged in teaching and scholarship, that the Garcetti test does not apply, and that rather we apply this Pickering balancing. And there is, in effect, this assumption that the speech that professors are engaged in uh, is, while engaged in teaching or scholarship, is equivalent to speech as a private citizen with, with some slight modifications. So, so courts have generally acknowledged that there are um, ministerial actions that professors may take, um, the taking of attendance or, or role in a class, which might actually be relevant to the question we're dealing with here, which you know, isn't about teaching and scholarship, it's about the university knowing are the people that are supposed to be enrolled in class actually there. It's a, it's a ministerial function that is necessary for the university's functioning. And then under the Pickering test, there is this, this balancing that, that occurs um, where um, uh, the university's interests in being able to operate as a university and potentially relevant here, its ability to offer uh, educational opportunities on equal terms to all students enrolled uh, may weigh against the professor's claim of, of uh, First Amendment protection. But so that's the way um, these academic freedom principles are, are kind of translated through a First Amendment doctrine in, in the context of state universities. And in this opinion, the Sixth Circuit joined, if I recall correctly, the Fourth, Fifth, and Ninth Circuits in holding that we don't apply Garcetti, that instead we, we adopt this balancing test, which puts a lot of weight uh, on, um, on, on the idea that the, profess the professor's speech in class is at least potentially protected. And, and I think just in terms of the specifics of this case, the, the district court had held that Garcetti should apply. So, you know, kind of the, 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 as a legal matter, the, the nub of this case is really um, uh, what test should be applied to what to Professor Murray Weathers' uh, classroom speech and whether or not um, uh, he had no First Amendment claim at all because his referring to students in class was merely part of his performing his classroom duties or whether or not it was speech that would have to be balanced against um, uh, the university's interests in, among other things, being able to provide educational opportunities equally uh, to all those enrolled. Great. So, Jeannie, that brings us quite naturally then to uh, what the court uh, in the Sixth Circuit wanted to do uh, with the speech, which was characterized as being a matter of public concern, which triggered some of these doctrinal implications and then fits into Steve's point about uh, the nature of the particular speech Meriwether is engaged in. And so why why does the court think that this kind of speech uh, should be properly characterized as a matter of public concern? And what's the significance of labeling it that way? Right. So in order to be a matter of public concern, it really has to relate to some matter that is political, social, or something that's really of concern to the community. And it can be, a, you know, and the, the classic things that you can think of are indeed race and gender. Um, those are matters of public concern. You can have debates about how race plays out in our society, about whether uh, women um, are equal or unequal or whether they're in, in all kinds of contexts, you can have speech that is of public concern in that way, but you can also imagine certain things that have messages like racial epithets um, being used, um, say, I mean, the, the one, one of the examples that, that we have in the doctrine is racial epithets used to motivate, you know, a basketball team used by a basketball coach. That's not uh, 
really properly categorized as a matter of public concern. That's not like a debate about race. Um, so I think that the, it's, it's, the, the case turns on whether the choice to call someone by a pronoun or by Mr. or Ms. is an issue of public concern. And I have, um, I have a view similar to Steve in this context. And, and I, I will also say I bring some of my own personal experience in how I have experienced being called by certain names and pronouns in my own life. For example, um, there was a time in my first year of teaching, my very first semester, right out of the gate, when a visiting professor to my school, you know, I'm like a first year assistant professor, female, right, Asian. And uh, a, a first, uh, and for whatever reason, I do not know the reason, but um, this visiting professor decided in, uh, in his class uh, with our common students, we were in this teaching in the same section, decided that he would call me Mrs instead of professor as he, he and he would re he referred to other professors as professor but me as mrs and so you know the female students came to me and they were they were quite disturbed about this i mean did i file a title IX complaint no i didn't but i certainly didn't think that it was that professor's right to do that um, and certainly it's something a situation like that when it arises you can work it out by talking to the person and saying hey you know i i you know i hopefully then that goes well and the person just cuts it out and will cut call you by the you know, honorific that you want to be called. Um, similarly, so what I think about is like just uh, if if a professor wanted to say I don't believe in gender at all, and so I'm going to call everybody in my class by Mister, or I have a view about women and and the fact that they don't, you know I don't think they you know should be in law school because of you know Bradwell versus Illinois type of reasons, and and so that I'm going to you know basically call them by some, uh, you know, some male pronoun or, you know, just something to make my point, my political point. Um, sure, those things have messages. And so this court, the Sixth Circuit might possibly categorize thing, those things as issues of public concern, matters of public concern, and, and, that, and say that that person had a right to call someone Mrs. or, or to say, um, say that you, let's say that there was a person who was a, an arch feminist and had a real problem with women taking their husband's last names. And so then insisted on calling them by their maiden name, even though the person had taken their husband's last name. So you can just imagine myriad situations where the professor can decide on their own unilaterally what they're going to call you. And it can be motivated by ideology or religious beliefs or other kinds of political beliefs, I don't think that that means automatically that it you categorize that utterance as a matter of public concern. I think that there are some things, it's to me that the, the, I can see the argument, but those things are just, I think they're just non-discretionary. You call the person by what they want to be called and you, and maybe it bothers you that you have to call someone Ms. instead of Mrs. when you think that women should be referred to by their husband's names. Or you know, maybe it bothers you that this, you think this person is really a, a male, but you have to call them by a female pronoun. Maybe it does bother you, but does it rise to the level where we think this is an issue matter of public concern? Um, I, I just don't think so. 
I think that those are those are things. It's like your name is your name. If you want to discuss gender identity, if you want to discuss marriage and feminism and the place of women in our society, and you want to do that in class, and you have views that may be offensive to your students, that's covered. Those are matters of public concern. Yeah, so there's a useful uh, point you just made there at the very end of it that particularly I think is worth playing out a little bit of thinking about um, uh, sort of where that boundary is between what counts as matters of public concern and what doesn't. And so the mere fact that you're motivated to say something in class because of a larger ideological worldview um, uh, may not itself mean that we ought to think of it um, as a matter of public concern that we would distinguish um, uh, how, what labels we use to call a student in class from a substantive discussion of the topic. Meriwether in his particular context wants to emphasize um, that he's a philosophy professor and sometimes these issues are on the table um, in the classes, even though this didn't seem to be the issue that was on the table in this particular class and in this particular um, uh, topic. Um, so, so you just noted that you thought that, that if you were substantively engaging in the conversation of trying to think about gender identity issues, that that clearly would be a matter um, of public concern and thus protected. One kind of concern about the way the opinion's written, and I'm curious as to what your view is, as to uh, uh, how far does that extend off in the other direction, which is to say, um, imagine uh, likewise that a um, uh, a biology, uh, well, or a physics professor um, uh, also has views uh, about gender identity and decided to spend part of his class time um, talking about gender identities as, a, as and, and let's say not just in terms of how he's going to refer to students, but in terms of substantive conversation. Is there, is there a, a way for the opinion to grapple with that kind of speech and would it necessarily then be characterized as, well, this too is speech that's a matter of public concern. It's speaking about things, the professor is saying things that are relevant um, to public debates more generally. And as a consequence, um, it's entitled to a full First Amendment protection that ought to um, advantage the professor a great deal to be able to engage in those kind of conversations in his physics class, as well as in a philosophy class, uh, for example. Um, so I, I will just quickly follow up and say that um, I'm sure that people listening will, have, will have disagreements on that exact question. But for me, um, the leeway of a classroom, academic classroom, right, whether you're teaching physics or family law or feminist theory um, is, is quite wide. Normatively, I feel that it should be quite wide. And so perhaps there's absolutely no linkage, no relevance to the physics curriculum that, the, that, that, that is supposed to be covered. Um, but I would, there I would err on the side of this is a university where discourse and debate can occur. And it's, I don't think it's a good idea to say if it's a physics class, it's off limits and you can't have an actual debate about an important issue in our society. Steve, Jonathan, is it equally on the table as a for a physics professor to well, think this is a matter of public concern? Well, so I'm, I'm not sure what the difference is. So, so many yeah. have taught political philosophy, as I understand it. Now, you know, I guess there's some sense that a philosopher thinks the whole world is their purview and, you know, everything is philosophy in some sense. And Meriwether in, in some of the filings makes some half-hearted attempts, I think, to say it offends his sense of truth as a philosopher to 
uh, have to refer to a student by a gender he thinks is not true. But, but again, to be very clear, he, he filed this complaint and, 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 and cited his religious beliefs. I, I don't think there's any argument that they were having a discussion of, about gender grounded in academic philosophy. So I, th I think your physics example is basically no different than what was going on here. I don't think we should assume that, that, that he had a greater license to do what he was doing because it was a philosophy class, because the, 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 the actual subject was not gender and linguistics or the philosophy of pronouns. Um, you know, so it doesn't really matter whether he was teaching math, physics, philosophy, or whatever. Jonathan? Yeah, I, 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 I view these a little differently. I think the use of pronouns, even in class, is a matter of public concern. I think if one looks at the history of pronoun usage, um, the switch from use of miss and, and missus to ms um, in terms of honorifics, I mean, have, have, have certainly been imbued with meaning. I, I don't think um, the Sixth Circuit erred in considering pronouns used in class to be a matter of public concern. The same reason that I don't think there's really much question that a private citizen who insisted upon using whatever pronouns they thought were, were uh, appropriate without regard for the preferences or attributes or anything else of the people they were labeling or identifying, that that, that would be First Amendment protected. Um, the question I think really is to what extent um, uh, in the context of universities generally does the do concepts of academic freedom prevent the university from saying we have other interests which outweigh that? And in the specific context of a public university, because I don't think the First Amendment doctrine and academic freedom principles quite apply the same way. The First, First Amendment doctrine is a blunter tool, but in the context of a public university, whether or not uh, there are interests that outweigh the, the, the substantive content of, of um, things like pronoun choice. And, and I think you know, the real question going forward is to what extent can universities and do universities uh, put on the table interests that trump Meriwether's claim here? So, so I would just frame it in, in that way. You know, is, is there, are there interests that are integral to a university and in particular a public university doing what a public university does that are more important than the, um, the political, religious, ideological, and other content of the speech that Meriwether wanted to engage in. And I, and I think in most cases, the answer to that probably is yes. I mean, I, I you know, uh, and, and um, so I don't necessarily, you know, I don't think that, that Professor Meriwether in terms of his complaint should ultimately prevail uh, in terms of what he wants to be able to do in the classroom. Um, but I don't think it's because there aren't First Amendment issues at stake, there aren't academic issues at stake, and that pronouns aren't matters of public concern. It's rather that if a university is to do what a university does, it, 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 it can well decide that treating all students in a particular way is necessary to providing an educational experience in which all participants are treated with equal dignity. And I think that, that a university could well say, we can't do that if you are stigmatizing individuals in the classroom, um, particularly in ways that are not essential to the subject matter, subject or subject matter in, uh, that is being discussed in a particular class. Right? I think a university could say, look, that's why you can't do this, Professor Merriweather. Um, uh, but I think it's different than saying, you know, 
choice of pronouns don't implicate some pretty big issues that, you know, while I don't agree with Professor Merriweather's conception of these questions, the, he frames them in, in, some, in some pretty broad ways that, that certainly speak to the sorts of things we care about in terms of both the First Amendment and the search for truth, which is you know, part of why we care about academic freedom. Yeah, Steve, the court characterizes this as by, by saying that if, if Meriwether is speaking about matters of public concern, he has a First Amendment interest, and as a consequence, now we're in the realm of thinking about some kind of balancing test of thinking about whether or not the state's interest in this context, in the, in the context of a public university, outweighs the professor's in First Amendment interest in this particular context. How should we think about that balancing and, and what kinds of interest might outweigh a uh, faculty member's interest in, in uh, classroom speech. We, Jonathan mentioned one kind of example earlier where the state may, uh, the public university administrators might say, well, you have to call the roll um, and as a consequence uh, count attendance so that we know who, which students are there. Um, that may be an imposition um, on uh, how the faculty member is running the classroom, uh, but that's a kind of interest the state uh, clearly has. Um, how expansive is the state's interest? What are the kind of circumstances in which we might think uh, the public university's interest uh, outweigh the faculty member's interest? I think to answer that question, we first need to sort of clearly delineate what is the faculty member's interest in this context. We're not talking about a, a sort of public meeting where the faculty member spoke and was on a par with citizens generally exercising their First Amendment rights. Um, again, in the classroom, I think the faculty member's interest is being able to apply her or his best professional specialized academic judgment, judgment that's gained through rigorous study and training about how to best teach the assigned subject matter, um, what topics and readings to select, what facts are true or untrue, what theories merit consideration or, or don't, uh, what are the most effective teaching methods, um, how should the faculty member lecture and guide discussion in a way that's productive to learning. You know, I, I would say that that gets at the core of academic freedom. And if the university violates that, it's a problem that, that, that our expectation is that uh, faculty members are not laws unto themselves in the classroom, but when they are using academic judgment and specialized knowledge, their claim to speech and, and free speech and academic freedom is at its height. Um, but again, a, a, a faculty member is not... Um, a, a, a law unto himself or herself. The university has an educational mission to accomplish as well. Um, the AAUP has always recognized that academic freedom carries not only rights, but duties, and that the university in this context has an interest in maintaining an efficient and productive and effective educational institution. Um, and, and this sort of keys on to what Jonathan was just saying. Um, academic freedom, uh, uh, it, 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 and I maybe I'm disagreeing here a bit with, with Jeannie in the sense of, you know, I, I think academic freedom means if you're assigned to teach political philosophy, you can't choose to lecture on Mozart or math or the Book of Romans. Uh, you know, he might be required to teach on Fridays or take attendance or provide a syllabus. And I just think there's no coherent established, recognized academic freedom uh, uh, objection to that kind of really regulation. It's more regulation of conduct rather than it is reg regulation of speech. 
I, I think the university also has an interest in maintaining, and again, this I think just amplifies what Jonathan said very well, maintaining an atmosphere of mutual respect and collegiality. But that advances effective learning. Universities are hierarchical places. And, and, and this, you know, and, and all of us as faculty members, I think, worry about protecting collegiality and making sure that we have, um, you know, a, a good, healthy uh, environments in which we can do our work. And so I think um, when a professor insists on displacing a student's own understanding on the deeply personal matter of, of his or her own gender, and instead substituting the professor's own religious beliefs about the matter, um, th that's simply out of bounds because it doesn't fall under the, the heading of, uh, of academic freedom. I, I would disagree with Jonathan, I guess, and say, I don't think it, in that context, it's a matter of speech on a public concern. It's not about the substance of teaching or knowledge. It's something the university, uh, uh, the institution can rightly regard as insulting and demeaning to the student. And the university's interest in non-discrimination, in assuring that students have an effective learning environment, that there are no arbitrary barriers to their effective learning and their effective inclusion. I, I think there the university's interest is very strong. So Ginny, to pick up on this last point that Steve just made about um, uh, the university's interest in uh, protecting students from speech by faculty that they might regard as particularly demeaning, for example, um, and the pronoun policy that um, the university in this context wanted to adopt might be an example of that. Um, I wonder one, how, how much you would agree with that basic thrust that that's an interest the university has that would justify overriding faculty speech. And if so, um, how far might that extend ultimately? How much regulation could the university properly engage in with the kind of speech faculty engage in? So for example, could, it, could that concern of making sure that faculty don't engage in speech that students might regard as demeaning um, uh, mean that the university can restrict the substantive content of what you uh, uh, teach? what kinds of um, items you might require students to read um, in the class, how you use pronouns in your published scholarly work, uh, for example. So if students objected that you were mis, uh, uh, misidentifying um, uh, the gender of somebody in your published scholarship, uh, should the, could the university also intervene and say, you can't do that either, um, because uh, that also uh, uh, might be taken by some students as demeaning of their own choices and as a consequence um, uh, has implications for this larger set of concerns we have about creating an equitable environment in which students can um, operate in, in the university more freely. One of the really tricky things is that with the concept of dignity that Jonathan first put on the table and that we, we want people to be treated with dignity and also not to be demeaned on the other side. Um, but we have seen over time that what is considered demeaning um, can change, right? So that um, sometimes it's quite confusing and people can get caught in a situation where they do not think they're being demeaning, but that they're, they're being told by the parties who feel demeaned that they were demeaned. And this is the kind of the, the situation in which the university often has to adjudicate disputes about who had the right to do what and who had the right to be treated in what way. Um, that none of this, you know, whatever happens with this doctrine, that doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's not going to solve that basic problem, which is that we live in a society that is constantly changing with lots of diverse players 
and with changing concepts of what dignity entails and what, what is considered to be humiliating, what is demeaning. And that's just one of the things that the university is constantly debating about. That's part of it. But I think that at any given point, there probably is a set of things, some set of things, maybe with vague borders, but still some set of things that we would all agree and should, um, that, that it doesn't make sense to allow a faculty member to sit at the head of the classroom and say, I think that group X is a bunch of cockroaches or, you know, uh, a whole, you know, you know, or to use a racial epithet to refer to their students or other people of that group. I think that those are the kinds of things. I mean, you can have a debate about race. You can have a debate about gender. You can have a debate about things and people can get offended. And that is to me still part of what academic um, freedom is about. That uh, if, we, if people weren't getting offended at some point, then what are we doing in a university? You were supposed to be pushing forward ideas, but there is some border at which we say, you can't say that this group is you know, inferior um, or call them by a racial epithet. Um, so I think that the line is there. Um, I, I do think that I, I tend to disagree with both. It seems like I'm disagreeing with both Jonathan and Steve um, in that John, I prefer my framework to Jonathan's. Uh, Jonathan like very laid out very well his preferred framework for thinking about this. I prefer mine mainly because um, I think under his, uh, it's possible that someone discussing uh, a matter of public concern in class, you know, in a way that might be um, upsetting to students or, you know, experiences demeaning to by them would be balanced against other values that the university has. And I, I don't go that far. I would say there are some, some things that are non-discretionary, like the name that you call someone. And also like, you can't, you know, call someone a whole group of, a bunch of cockroaches. But I think that, um, uh, you know, there, there's a, to me, there's wide leeway for professors, whether in physics class or whatever. And this is the part, I guess, where I disagree with Steve. I have been, I have taught classes on, you know, let's say I was teaching a class on performing arts and the law and something happened in the world, like say non-indictment of Eric, uh, Eric Gardner's uh, killer, like a, the police officer who killed Eric Gardner. And, and I decided, okay, I'm gonna take a time out and I'm gonna have an actual discussion in my class, which is about dance and music um, about that topic. And to me, that is definitely covered by academic freedom and it would be the same for a physics professor. So I don't know, I feel like with Jonathan and Steve, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like they're both covering too much and or at least Jonathan is covering too much and covering too little. And I would say I, I've got the Goldilocks approach. <laughs> Everybody always wants to have the Goldilocks approach. Um, so uh, I want to turn to uh, some of the uh, very interesting questions we've gotten from uh, the audience. Before I do that, Jonathan, I want to give you a chance to uh, uh, weigh in on, on this before we uh, lose track of some of this thread. Well, I mean, I, I, I think that, that balancing uh, speech that, that uh, can be offensive um, against other interests makes, I mean, I think, I think it's, First of all, I think it's the implication of taking um, uh, academic speech outside of Garcetti, at the universities outside of Garcetti. You know, could we, if we were starting from scratch, 
come up with a more nuanced and delicate um, First Amendment doctrine that specifically focused on academic freedom than what we have, sure, we could. I mean, I, I, I am kind of accepting that we have these blunt boxes. And I think that um, uh, at, at this level of generality, most of what the Sixth Circuit did on, on, on the questions of how to apply First Amendment doctrine were correct, given the posture of the case before it um, and the way that the university acted and defended its actions. Um, and as I've noted before, I don't think that necessarily means that Professor Merriweather, if the case is not settled, necessarily wins below, because I do think there are things that the university could argue there are facts that were not before the Sixth Circuit that would matter. Um, but I think precisely because uh, so much academic content, uh, so many ideas that, that um, may come up in classes can make some people um, uncomfortable, feel stigmatized and so on, that this sort of balancing approach um, is worthwhile in the sense that, that, that we, it, it forces us to think about, okay, what is the university trying to do? What is essential to the university's mission? Um, and how do we balance that against um, uh, uh, the, the, the professor's claim? And, um, and I do think that might mean in some cases even uh, that, that just to sharpen the disagreement a little bit, that it might mean that the performing arts class uh, professor might not have the, 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 the leeway uh, that Jeannie suggests, but I, I think it actually depends in part on how the institution has defined what it is doing. And admittedly, uh, state institutions cannot be as, as nuanced and supple in the way they balance these concerns as private institutions might be. Um, I, I think that that probably comes to the territory though, in, in the sense that that's often the case for governmental actors, whether as employers, as university operators, as operators of other things, they don't have the full range of, of flexibility that, that equivalent private actors might. And, and I'm not sure we can have an administrable doctrine that does give them quite the same degree of, of leeway. So just, I, yeah, go ahead, Steve, sorry. Yeah, I, I just, I, I continue to struggle with, you know, thinking through this as a, as a matter of balancing. And I, I guess I just want to put in a plug for, for my approach, which is much more focused on, on, on characterizing the nature of speech or having a, a sort of taxonomy or category of speech. If the faculty member is, is legitimately and in good faith speaking from her or his academic expertise, training, study, research, experience, I think there is a strong, strong, heavy presumption in their favor, regardless of whether um, the speech offends students or not, assuming the teaching methods are sound and not, you know, deliberately provocative or something like that, that then I think, you know, no matter how upset the student is, maybe the student has to grow up and live with it. Um, you know, on the other hand, if, if we are talking about a question of decorum, if we are talking about a ministerial issue, if we're talking about somebody who is simply asked to observe a policy the way advocates in a courtroom are expected to observe decorum, no matter how strongly they may feel about their views or the opposing counsel or the judges, then I think, um, you know, the, the university, and in this case, the student, uh, has a, a, a much stronger claim presumptively over the rights of the faculty member. So I, I guess I just continue to think, of, to think there's value in in, 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 in evaluating this 
from the get-go is, is the faculty member's speech the product of their academic research study expertise. Um, but that strongly informs the amount of deference the speech is going to get. Can Judy, I ask you a question? Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. So, I mean, just let, let's say hypothetically it's the 1960s and we have a university that has a decorum rule that, requ that requires professors to refer to people by their last name with an honorific, but because it's the 1960s, um, female students, according to the university policy, are to be referred to as Miss or Mrs. based on their marital status. And I think under your policy, there would be no First Amendment claim or interest by a professor who found that university policy to be demeaning, to be contrary to that professor's view of what is pedagogically sound in, in order to facilitate the truth-seeking process that is part of the classroom, and that at a state university, a professor that wanted to use Ms. instead, um, which as we remember, you know, what, it was, Ms. Magazine was called Ms. Magazine in part because it was fighting against this dominant norm, that that professor would, have, would not have a First Amendment interest, or presumptively, unless they were a gender studies professor, which I don't think existed at the time, um, they would presumptively have no interest in, in being able to make that claim. Well, what I would they say- They have pedagogical that... arguments there. And, and I, 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 think, I think it's problematic. And I, and I think kind of one goes with the other in terms of the framework we use. Again, Professor Mary Rather may still well lose um, within my framework, um, but I think the framework has to be uh, applied equally to both these scenarios. I, I would say that I think the professor in that scenario has a strongly protected both academic freedom and First Amendment interest and claim in denouncing the policy in a letter to the editor, in an internal memo, to speaking out at the faculty senate, to speaking at faculty meetings, to addressing public fora on the issue. In all of those contexts, the professor would have a strongly protected academic freedom and First Amendment interest. You're right. I, I'm simply saying that you know, in, in following the procedure that's prescribed, if the professor want, doesn't want to do it, they cannot do it as a matter of civil disobedience. But I wouldn't say that they have a First Amendment right to refuse to follow the policy. They have a strong First Amendment right to speak out against it and to seek to change it. So, Jeannie, to, to sharpen your disagreement with Steve or, or your potential tensions with, with Steve on this, I want to take his example of, of saying that the, or his emphasis on saying that the faculty member has particular protections to speak from their research expertise and their scholarly expertise in the classroom um, and, and the like. And so when you say, I'm going to pause my theater class in order to talk about the Eric Garner clay, uh, case. Um, that has a particular significance for you to do it, um, uh, given your own scholarly expertise and relevance. Um, on the other hand, if you have uh, some random physics professor saying, I'm going to pause my class to talk about the fact that Trump won the election yesterday and how horrible I think that is, um, presumably that physics professor is not going to be able to make a similar kind of claim that you would be able to make um, in, in that particular example. And so for, for your purposes, do you want to think, well, he also ought to be able to take that time out um, to talk about Trump in the election because that's on everybody's mind and everybody's thinking about it. So we all just take time in class to talk about it, um, even though that falls outside the scope of Steve's sort of exception um, uh, as to where uh, academic freedom comes from and what the implications of it are. So yeah, the, the example of a physics professor or any professor of any subject pausing to say, all right, we had this big event, the Trump election, and we need to talk about it. That was exactly what I had in my mind 
that was actually the paradigm of what I had in my mind. And I thought, wow, that would be terrible if somehow, because the physics professor isn't an expert in Trump or electoral politics or whatever, however you categorize it, then, then somehow he would be less protected as a matter of academic freedom. I, I strongly feel that that professor should be able to talk about Trump um, and other political matters that have nothing to do with physics. Also, you know, when, when I, I completely understand and find reasonable what Steve is saying, however, it strikes fear in me as somebody who might be seen as, oh, I, I read about so many things that I'm not expert in until I start writing about them and researching it on that week. That week. And, and it just seems to me that um, there's a lot as academics, what we have is the freedom and the luxury to become knowledgeable on things we're not knowledgeable about yet. And part of how we become knowledgeable and develop our, our knowledge is by speaking about them and discussing them with people, including our students. You try out, sometimes you try out ideas on your students that you haven't written about and that you haven't spent a ton of time researching and so I, I just think these lines are very hard to draw in the way that Steve imagines. And I think that there is something to be said for academic freedom, including talking about things you don't know a lot about. I would agree with, with Jeannie in the sense that I think that process of learning and exploring and dialogue and debating ideas, it is protected, it is part of the academic enterprise. I think maybe we will disagree about the physics professor talking about. Now the physics professor can can host a, an, an off-hours meeting to talk about Trump and can you know stand in the quad and talk about Trump. I'm I'm, I'm just not sure he can talk in physics class about it. But I think we'll just agree to disagree on that. So um, uh, so I, I'm really tempted to, to explore that further, but I, but I should shift gears and take up one of the questions that has come up. I think is quite important to sort of try to get on the table um, and get some some further clarification about or get y'all to think some about, which is um, that the specific to the fact that this case arises in, in a public university context, um, the First Amendment directly applies because you, uh, because it's a governmental um, employer um, uh, in that context. And, and so uh, the kind of principles that, that Steve um, has referenced um, uh, are very much at the heart of what the AUP has argued that ought to be shared by universities uh, more generally. To what degree should we be able to care um, uh, the logic of the circuit court's opinion in this case uh, into the private university um, context. Is this going to have any uh, real implication for how we think about academic freedoms um, uh, in private universities where the First Amendment's not uh, directly relevant? Um, or is this really uh, strictly going to be cabined off and should be cabined off uh, into being relevant for public universities, but, but not for private universities? And I don't know who might want to take that issue up first. Uh, Jonathan? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll start. I mean, so I, mean, I think it's an important point. And, it, and the, the short answer is it depends, um, right? I mean, it, it and at most private universities, academic freedom rights are essentially contractual rights. It's a question of what um, the university has set forth in terms of its bylaws and other documents. Generally, um, courts view various policy statements by universities um, including as, as relate to speech and academic freedom more broadly as being incorporated into um, uh, the contracts of professors and, and, and as well as incorporated into the terms for students. Um, and some universities have made that explicit. So I, I think it really depends. I mean, I think one thing it does highlight is that insofar as any university 
feels it important to place certain sorts of constraints on what occurs in the classroom, whether it's pronoun usage or our uh, a politically interested physics professor or performing arts professor that we that we keep talking about, I do think it's important that those sorts of policies be articulated and be clear. Uh, as we noted before, one of the questions that came up in this case is the issue of the syllabus and not fully developed other than the, the district court did find, or the magistrate did find that the university claimed that the professor putting a dissenting statement in his syllabus would be a violation of the policy. Um, you know, is a syllabus uh, the university's speech? Is it the department's speech? Is it the individual professor's speech? Well, I think the answer depends on what university you're at and perhaps even what department you're at. Um, you know, at, at my school, um, syllabi tend to be quite personal statements about um, the goals of the course, um, often statements about the teaching philosophy in addition to conveying, you know, what we're gonna read on what day and so on. Um, that's not true everywhere. There are some schools where syllabi are quite regimented, where professors who teach different sections of the same subject will all have a common syllabus that is approved by the department. Um, and so whether or not the syllabus is the professor's statement um, uh, or the university statement is very context specific. I mean, I, so I, I think ultimately this, this suggests that, that universities should be more conscious about Okay, what, what, is it, what are the constraints we're placing on the classroom and how are we doing so in a way that ensures that uh, academic freedom, meaningful academic freedom still exists in the classroom as that relates to the search for truth and other things that we think are, are important aspects of that. And I, I would hope private universities think about these questions um, carefully and don't simply say, oh, well, because we're not state institutions, we can just ignore it. Uh, Jean? Yeah, so um, so one of the study, one of the areas that I do study um, is Title IX. And this, this case, like other cases that are now bubbling up in the courts, it is about the boundaries or the potential clash or tension between what is protected by Title IX and what is protected by freedom of speech. And that that is, of course, in the uh, public university context, it's about the First Amendment versus um, a federal statute and figuring out the boundaries of that. But then it applies, then, but Title IX, of course, applies to universities that are not public universities. And so the freedom of speech values, um, even if you're not talking specifically about the First Amendment, are important and they are being worked out case by case. Um, in many, many universities, a lot of the sexual conduct that is being punished, disciplined, investigated is verbal. Um, so it, this is just, this is something that we're, we're like, we're really right in the middle of it right now. The development is ongoing. And, um, and my, my own view is that um, the public university, private university distinction um, makes, it, it's less sharp because the values on the other side are shared in common, um, namely values like the Title IX, sex discrimination, um, race discrimination values, Title VI, these values, at, you know, Title VII in the employment context, I just think those are ultimately what are driving this current set of conflicts about academic freedom and about the First Amendment and about free speech. 
And so I, I think the contours are, are going to be quite similar. Steve, do you want to weigh in on that or? I, 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 I agree with Jeannie I, I, and, and, and I, I, I mean, if we're, if we're talking at, once again about academic freedom rather than the first amendment, then there really shouldn't be a difference. Uh, the, the values should be the same. Um, it's just, you know, private, private universities don't have the external constraint or mandate of the, of the Constitution, but, you know, this is, this is a, an academic freedom opinion, ostensibly an academic freedom organization, and so I think um, the, the, the value should be the same, and theoretically the outcome, um, the outcome should be the same as well. Um, and just to, to, to Jonathan's point about, um, about the syllabus, um, I, I I, I think that's an important question. I guess I, I probably there was a little more sympathetic with the university that the syllabus, once again, is supposed to reflect the professor's considered teaching uh, decisions. But you know, no one traditionally thinks of a syllabus, I guess, as a sort of forum for the discussion, for the open discussion of ideas and and and, and uh, or for for political protest. But I, I'm not sure how strongly committed I am to that. Yeah, I did want to pick up on this compromise issue that was um, uh, suggested by Meriwether and that, that and that became an issue in this case, and then which which has a, the particular version of it being put on the table by Meriwether was the idea of let's have a disclaimer in the syllabus, and the university wanted to rule that out. I take uh, Jonathan's point that so I vary across different universities as to what exactly those look like. Certainly, there are features of a syllabus that lots of universities want to say uh, we're going to be speaking in the institutional voice uh, for these components you have to put on your syllabus. Um, uh, for example, how students respond to mental health crises or Title IX uh, reporting, for example, and we expect whatever else you have on your syllabus, you're at least going to have that. And so we think some components of the syllabus um, reflect the university's uh, speech. Um, so then the question is, I guess, is whether we should think that, that the kind of compromise that Meriwether put forward was reasonable in trying to balance uh, the, the university's interest here and the faculty member's interest. And even if the university wound up saying, and even when we think it's reasonable for the university to say, uh, well, you can't write that in the syllabus, you can't contradict our policy on the syllabus itself, um, would have been equally an option for Meriwether simply to start each class by, by issuing a verbal disclaimer uh, saying, I personally disagree with this policy, but this is the policy the university has adopted. And so I'm going to adhere to it um, for purpose of the class. Um, but uh, here's, here's why I have a, have a disagreement with it. Um, is, is he within his rights to do that? Or is that also uh, going to run afoul of these kinds of institutions? interest. Sort of like, you know, similar debates of gay rights versus religious liberty. There may be a difference between legal doctrine and, and sort of common sense and trying to, to achieve an accommodation under which we can all live. And so I, I might be able to get on board with that. Maybe I'd want to tweak the wording a little bit, um, you know, uh, uh, of what the disclaimer says. Um, notwithstanding what I said previously about the syllabus, I'm not, I'm not sure that was entirely unreasonable and might have saved us all a, good deal of grief and so forth. But just to inject a sort of First Amendment doctrinal point for a second, if this is about compelled speech, I think the test is supposed to be what a reasonable person, if Meriwether were observing the university's policies uh, and calling the student by her uh, appropriate honorific, would the reasonable observer have thought that Meriwether, that, that he was expressing his view I think arguably not. The reasonable observer would just think he was honoring the university policy and shouldn't 
necessarily assume that he was endorsing one view of gender or the other. If that's correct, and if that is the correct understanding, then you could say the disclaimer isn't necessary because a reasonable person wouldn't think that Meriwether was on board with uh, a particular view of pronouns simply because he was carrying out the university's requirements. Ginny, do you want to jump in on that? Sure. Um, so I, it seems to me that there, the problem here is with the, the feeling of targeting of a specific individual. And so if you have this conflict and then you say, okay, then as a compromise, I'm going to put some language in there that will further stigmatize or seem to target one individual. Uh, you know, there are other compromises, for example, this, and I've seen this happen, where you just mid-semester decide, I'm just going to not use any pronouns, I'm just gonna call them by first name, last name, or just first name. Um, and yeah, you give up something because your ideal classroom as a teacher might be to use those honorifics to signal a certain formality. You do lose something, but that's what compromises. So I, I guess I would say if it's not targeted to the student and not reasonably construed by all the other students as being targeted to the student and you know, causing stigma to that specific individual, if it's say uh, the professor say, the physics professor wanted to put a view about gender identity or gender on their syllabus that was, you know, that was within the realm of public debate, um, before the class even began and before he even knew who was in the class, okay, I might be, I might be okay with that, you know, but you know, I don't think that's a good pedagogical choice. I wouldn't approve of it, but I would just say, okay, if you insist, then maybe, you know, with, maybe we, we have to let you do that, but uh, without punishing you. But um, the idea that like after it becomes an issue, you're gonna come to some accommodation that targets a student, no. Uh, Jonathan? I think that the, the question about what targets or stigmatizes an, an individual student, an individual member in, you know, certainly what I conceive of as the collective enterprise of, of education uh, in the classroom uh, is, I think, something that that the university has a legitimate interest in, in wanting to prevent. Um, you know, whether or not adding a disclaimer on the syllabus about uh, the professor's uh, disagreement with the university policy that the professor must observe in class, I don't... Um, I don't view that as, as something that's inherently stigmatizing, certainly not if, if the syllabus is, you know, post online or distributed at the beginning of the semester, um, you know, mid-semester when it comes up in a particular class, that might be, uh, that might be different, but I, I don't think that's any more inherently stigmatizing than expressing a view on an issue that cuts closer to home for some members of the class than the other. Um, I think, you know, the question then becomes, you know, is the syllabus the right place for that statement of disagreement? And I think that depends on the function that the syllabus plays in a particular course. I mean, you know, uh, but I can imagine all sorts of scenarios in which professors may want to include on their syllabi uh, statements that don't relate to the precise thing that they are teaching, uh, but that express their view. Um, uh, some university professors now include language on their syllabi about um, uh, uh, former Native American uh, property rights and claims in the area or the lands where the university now occupies um, on classes that have nothing to do with property, American history, um, Native American culture, and so on. Um, unless a university has a policy that the syllabus is the speech of the university about what content will be conveyed in the class, 
I think it's perfectly reasonable and, and within academic freedom for professors to include those sorts of statements. And I think the sort of statement that Professor Merriweather at least suggested he would accept as an accommodation um, uh, or, or would, would qualify in that regard. And again, we, what we have in the record here was he asked if, if that was allowable. The university said no. It's not clear he said that that was what he wanted, um, uh, but you know, it, is, it is one way that this case might have been resolved um, uh, more amenably than, than, than the current litigation. All right. So uh, thank you all very much for uh, this conversation. I think it's been very helpful to think through this case. Are there any last minute uh, or final concluding thoughts you want to uh, get out that uh, we weren't able to uh, cover before we, before we wrap up? I can just throw one thing. I mean, I, I think, you know, as we've talked about, you know, academic freedom is a, is a nuanced concept, right? In the sense that there is academic freedom that matters for the student, for the professor, for the department, for the university. And I do think our conversation, I think, has helped bring out the fact that, that academic freedom as a concept that universities care about has a more finely grained texture than First Amendment doctrine does. And, and perhaps the first, then First Amendment doctrine is capable of having. And, and to me, that just means that the, the, these issues aren't, aren't gonna give us neat, easy answers. Um, and um, there are gonna be places where reasonable people disagree on where the precise boundary should be, um, uh, even though we all are thinking about the same concepts. And, and, and I would just say that that's something that's important to keep in mind in these conversations. I, I, I would only add, uh, you know, one, one thing we haven't talked about is, you know, was this a political panel sort of rendering a political decision or not? I, I mean, I, I have argued that it was. I, I, I tend not to like, you know, identifying judges by who appointed them, but we do have two Trump appointees here and then another Republican appointee who's known to be conservative. I've spoken about, you know, paying attention to both the words of the decision and the music of the decision. And, and I think, my own view is if you read the decision, it, it, it reads like a piece of advocacy. It reads like a group of judges who decided it was their job to uh, 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 lay down some markers about excesses of woke culture and political correctness on, on universities. I just think in all the ways that judges can slant an opinion, spin precedent, employ rhetorical devices to sort of reach the conclusion they want, I, I think this panel really sort of flaunts its biases and that it, it privileges Professor Merriweather and his Christian identity in all sorts of ways, but doesn't uh, display a sort of countervailing regard for the student and, and her rights over her own identity. Jeannie, anything else to add? No, I'm good. Oh, all right. So thank you all very much. I appreciate uh, y'all helping us uh, work through this case. It's a uh, important case. It's likely to uh, be cited a lot uh, moving uh, forward. Obviously, the underlying issues um, are going to be important and uh, contentious um, in universities uh, moving ahead. Um, and so it's important to try to think through the, the challenges here um, and how to reconcile the university's uh, multiple interests as well as thinking about academic freedom. And I very much appreciate y'all taking the time uh, to help us do that. I appreciate um, y'all for uh, listening um, and uh, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. 
You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in. And we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.